calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Realm Presents Book Burners, Episode 19. Prologue. Place. Maestri del Tempo. Time. Always. Nothing felt as right as a clock. Nothing was so perfect and so taken for granted as the little wheels and springs that measure that master of us all, time. Bella screams as she takes her first breath, cupped in a midwife's hands, trying to focus on a pair of smiling brown eyes behind a mask. Her nephew, Matteo, had said that the new games on expensive phones, apps, made pleasure centers fire in people's brains, which led to addiction. While Bella Ferrara disapproved of the time Matteo, so handsome if you saw him from the angle that didn't show the scar on his right cheek, spent with his phone, a small, secret part of her understood completely. She felt that way whenever she could make the gears fit, make the ticking happen, make a clock live again. Every tick was dopamine to her. She hides from bullies in an old clock shop, and watching the old clockmaker's hands work so deft and so precise, her fear fades, and her own world snaps into place. Matteo understood. He was her protege, her lousy brother's third child, ignored by all except his aunt. He didn't have the skill, but he had the passion. Mother laments that Bella will never find a husband, never knowing that Antonio left for the war, carrying her heart, and never brought it back home to her. Her hands were old now, the knuckles swelling and the movements painful and slow, as if she had just dragged them from an ice bath. Her days as a clockmaker were numbered, she knew, but none of her nieces or nephews wanted the shop that would be their inheritance. Golden streams of time snarled and tangled like yarn and smoke and veins of silver. Time is everywhere and everything. Zia, Bella, why don't you just retire? You deserve it, Matteo would say. Sell the shop, buy a cottage by the sea, and live out the rest of your life relaxing. 
Antonio touches her, lights fires within her, and time slows. Mateo had the passion, but his hands were large and bulky, the hands of a sailor or a construction worker. If she had willed the business to him, he would have had to bring in another clockmaker, and that wouldn't do. No one else in her family wanted the business. She was sad they didn't love it as she did, but someone who didn't love this business had no right being in it. Clockmakers are called. Her father dies in a stinking hot room. And time stops, but only for a second. At night, she would dream of time, golden streams of it, how they crossed, some going faster than others. And all she had to do was pick a stream to place a boat upon and go anywhere. During the day, her shops sang to her, the little ticks and clicks marking her life. Every hour, the song reached a crescendo and then subsided. Going home was always a disappointment. Removing her hands from her work broke her heart a little each day. She receives riches as more and more wealthy customers seek her, as Rolex hires her to consult, as she becomes known as the finest clockmaker in Italy, but never leaves her tiny shop. Matteo's love for his Zia and his impressive business skills, something to do with computer chips, things with even smaller working parts than ladies' watches, led him to scour the antique shops when he traveled on business, and he brought her wonderful treasures. Clocks to fix, clocks to clean, antique tools even older than her own. The latest vine had been glorious. He would tell her nothing about where he got it from, except to say that the seller's name was Norse. She buys the clock shop from her old master, the man who unknowingly rescued her, both body and soul, the day she ducked through his door. She pays in cash she has saved for decades. It was a rounding up tool made of brass. It was clearly old, but had no sign of wear on it anywhere. She knew it was old because these tools simply weren't made anymore. It sang in her hands like her clocks did. The wheels spun silently and everything seemed to slow as she worked on her clocks. She had never been happier. She dies, bleeding and broken in the corner, thinking it is somehow fitting that she dies among her clocks. And she wonders if any of them will stop when she does. Everything happens at once, and it takes forever. One. Place. Sal's apartment. Time. 5.47.39 a.m. Cleaning house. Bzzz. Time to clean the house. Get the gloves and the bucket and bzzz. Like a tow rope pulling her from deep water, the buzzing phone led Sal from her dream into reality. She blinked, then swore. Bzzz. She stood in her bedroom, her hands flat on her dresser. Nothing was amiss beyond this, her modest jewelry box still sat in the middle of the dresser. And on the left side was the stack of clean laundry she was too lazy to put away. She looked up into the mirror and met her own eyes, seized by a sense of vertigo. Why are you standing here? She checked her bedside clock. Before six, she asked her reflection. It didn't answer. At least I'm not in the archives this time, she muttered, rubbing her face. The phone buzzed again from its place next to her clock, and Sal finally was able to unlock her joints and walk on shaky legs to retrieve it. It was a text from Grace. The orb must be active. Manchu had said they'd earned a day off, especially Grace, but if duty called, 
Time to make the donuts, Sal grumbled and pulled up the text. Knock, knock, Neo. The phrase stuck in her head, but she couldn't place the memory. She blinked and was about to text back, but a knock came at her door. Right, the Matrix. She sighed and went to answer the door. Grace stood there, a backpack slung over one shoulder, grinning widely. Sal stared at her, sure that something had to be wrong. What's going on, she asked. Is it the orb? Grace pushed past her with no invitation. Of course not, she said. It's my day off, remember? Why does your day off mean I get dragged from my bed at ass o'clock? Sal asked. Because you're coming with me, Grace said. Arturo approved it, insisted on it, really. We're gonna have some fun and nothing is gonna interrupt us. Sal raised her hand. Okay, my brain is going about five miles an hour. I'm gonna make some coffee and you're gonna tell me what exactly you're talking about. Grace frowned briefly in irritation, but then relaxed into her grin again. Usually when a mission's done, Liam goes to surf the internet, Arturo returns to his church duties and his studies. Sometimes he tells me he sees a movie. You come here and do whatever the hell it is you do. Grace waved her hand to encompass Sal's apartment. You know what I do? Sal paused from scooping coffee into her coffee maker. I know you can't afford to burn your candle on relaxation, she said softly. Exactly. When I relax, it's usually while traveling to and from a mission. Even then, Arturo had to fight the big guns to not keep the candle snuffed until the team needs me. Big guns? Sal had never thought of the priests and cardinals as big guns. Sal winced at the idea of carting Grace around like a vampire in a coffin, waking her up only to fight. She wondered who was in charge of deciding when to light Grace's candle, but saved that question for another time. A few years ago, I demanded a day off, 24 hours, just for me, Grace said. She sat down in a kitchen chair and leaned back, smiling. No demons, no travel, no demands. So they gave me one a year. Sal got two mugs from the dishwasher and filled both with coffee. She put a bottle of cream on the table and handed Grace one of the cups. Sal sat to join her, sipping her black coffee. Not that you don't deserve it, but I find it hard to believe they agreed to not having you on call, at least. That's what bugs Liam. We're not like normal cops because we're always on call. Liam gets downtime, I don't, Grace said. Hey, what was with the Matrix comment anyway, Sal asked. Grace's eyes gleamed. A while back, I watched a marathon of all three of the Matrix movies. I loved them. All of them? Sal asked suspiciously. Years after they came out? Grace nodded. You really are sheltered from pop culture, Sal said. I catch up as much as I can on days off. Sometimes travel. Now finish your coffee. I have a full day planned. A spin class. Grace wanted to go to a spin class. They bought a trial membership to a local gym and made it in time for the 7 a.m. session. Why are we doing this again exactly? Sal asked. All of my workouts consist of sparring with Liam and doing our job, Grace said, glancing at the people around them as she watered down their day-to-day -day duties. I never, ever get to exercise just for the fun of it. We could go for a run, hike near some of the ruins outside the city, take a swim. Sal trailed off as music began thumping, and a tightly muscled woman with short white blonde hair began talking into a headset. Oh, we'll do those things too, if you want, Grace said. But I've seen these classes on TV, and I've always wanted to try them. She turned the tension up on her bike and began to pedal furiously. 
As she climbed onto the bike next to Grace's, Sal found herself hoping to be called away to fight demons. It would likely be more fun. As soon as she started pedaling, her phone buzzed, and she gratefully searched her pocket for it. Asante was texting. Oh, thank God. She glanced at Grace. Asante, she said, waving the phone. Grace didn't take her eyes off the class leader. Answer her if you like. I'm not going back until this day is over. Sal slowed her pedaling and focused on her phone, avoiding the irritated looks of the men and women pedaling to the video of the Italian countryside that was playing behind the leader. Did Grace drag you out of bed? Asante texted. Yep, we're at a freaking spin class. Everything okay there? Things are fine here. You two have fun. Likely be the last one you have before summer's spotless. We'll try. Would rather not be spinning, though. Sal sent the final text and put the phone back in the slot on her handlebars, made for those who couldn't be away from their precious devices. She picked up her pace to rejoin the fake ride through the countryside, when the real countryside was just a few miles away. But the class leader pointed her out. If you do not respect the class, you are given the mud bike, she called in heavily accented English. She pointed to a bike near the back, far from Grace. Sal paused to see if she was serious. The woman had stopped pedaling and kept pointing. Sal groaned and grabbed her phone, then went to the bike and climbed aboard, noticing that it didn't have a tension knob. The pedals were very heavy. It had been locked on the tightest position, like she was biking through mud. Clever. Sal shot an irritated look at Grace, who grinned at her and shrugged. I'm doing this for her. It was going to be a long hour. Place. The Black Archives. Time, 7.04.43 a.m. Damn, although correct, Asante said after she reread her last text. She put the phone in her pocket, then glared at Liam. Can I help you, Liam, or do you want to watch the next text I send as well? Things are fine here, he asked, pointing at the glowing orb, its transcription apparatus chattering quietly as it delivered information. Does that look fine to you? Why did you lie to her? We might need them. Asante glanced at the notes the orb had spat out thus far. I don't think so. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Local. Something has awakened. We can handle it with the people we have. Just the two of us, Liam asked, nodding toward Menchu, who sat at Asante's desk. Of course not, Asante said, finishing her notes. I'm going with you. Liam rolled his eyes and stomped off, mumbling something about breakfast. After he had gone, Asante looked at Menchu. At least this looks like minor activity. Don't discount minor activity. It can turn major in a short time. The Glasgow incident started minor, didn't it? He looked at her unblinking. She met his gaze. She knew he was waiting on her to show some sort of guilt for the Glasgow trip, but she regretted nothing. They had learned a lot about Sal on that trip, and the group enjoyed their one-day vacation in Glasgow. Yes, the vacation had been largely spent at a wake and funeral, but a change of pace was nice. We'll be fine, she repeated. And if you don't trust me on this, don't say that, Asante. Not again, he said, interrupting her and standing up. I trust you to do the right thing, always. I just don't trust you to judge the danger of a situation as quickly as the others. They see a lion, while you see a fascinating bone and muscle structure of yellow purring fluff that you'd like to study more closely. Then I'm not sure about the wisdom of having Sal exempt from duties, as Grace is. Sal will come if we need her, Menchu said, watching the orb. And Grace has never let us down. 
Liam returned, clutching a bag of breakfast sandwiches, which he dropped on Asante's desk. He rummaged around in the bag and grabbed a sandwich. What I don't understand, he said as if he had never left, is why Sal gets a day pass. Grace deserves one. She doesn't take a lot of time off, it seems. But the new bird comes in and suddenly gets the same treatment. He shrugged, winced, then stretched. Asante watched in sympathy. They needed more than one night's sleep to recover after the Delphi trip, but the orb had to be heated. With what we've been dealing with, everyone needs time off. You get tomorrow, Menchu said. Liam pulled a chair to Asante's desk and tore into his sandwich as if it had offended him. I think someone is a bit jealous, Asante said. The Irishman flushed. It's tough being the odd person out, but they're not consciously excluding you. Liam choked. That's not the issue. Asante noted how he avoided her gaze and began to guess the real reason behind his discomfort. Does this have something to do with you and- God damn it, Asante, Liam said. Mind your own business. I'm fine. Asante watched him carefully. She would have to broach the subject with him later, without Manchu around. Liam needed to talk something out, that was clear. The orb glowed again and Asante examined the new data. We have the location now, a clock shop a few kilometers north of here. Looks like an artifact, not a book, thank goodness. An artifact in a clock shop, Liam asked. How much do you want to bet it messes with time? How are we supposed to deal with that? Carefully, Menchu said. Find out who owns the shop. Liam frowned and went to his backpack to get his laptop. Asante glanced at Menchu and noticed him typing on his phone, his back to them. Asante wasn't worried. If he was texting Grace, she'd ignore him today. Unless maybe Menchu was in trouble. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Two. Place. Grande Tercio Cafe. Time. 8.29.27 a.m. Have a Bellini, Grace said grandly, passing one of the tall bubbling flutes to Sal. It will calm your muscle spasms. It will, Sal asked, raising an eyebrow. Her legs had been shaky and unpredictable after the spin class. Add that on top of the aches and pains she had from the previous day's trip to Delphi, and she felt about a hundred years old. She'd not been allowed to get off the mud bike for the entire class. She almost left, but the look on Grace's face, pleading, stopped her. Not that Grace was pleading now. She lounged across the table at perfect ease in a tie-waist floral print dress and a Panama hat cocked back at an angle. The woman didn't even have the decency to look flushed. Sal accepted the glass and sipped the Bellini. She didn't understand why one would ruin sparkling wine with peach puree, but figured adding the fruit made it okay to booze it up in the morning. Maybe, I don't know, Grace said, flipping a hand, careless. Alcohol relaxes you, doesn't it? Sal looked at the menu. The prices were shocking, but Grace said she didn't have a lot to spend her income on, especially with the Vatican covering her lodging at the convent. Sal thought about all the gold that was rumored to be inside the Vatican and figured they could spring for expensive pastries and a few more Bellinis. They ordered and then relaxed back into their seats. Sal wasn't used to drinking in the morning and the wine hit her hard. She studied her friend. One day off a year. How do you not lose your mind? Grace frowned. What do you mean? I've seen a lot of cops get PTSD from dealing with shit much less scary than what we fight. They need rest with friends and family and sometimes a therapist. But you have terrifying fights. Go down and wake up to more terrifying fights. It doesn't seem mentally healthy. Grace focused past Sal, thinking. Arturo helps me. He wakes me every week for a short talk to let me know what day it is and what has been going on. She took a sip of her drink and smiled at Sal. Lately, we've had so much activity that he doesn't need to do that, but it helps when things are slow. You two have been through a lot together, Sal said, putting down her empty glass. Another Bellini appeared at her elbow. Yes, for me, it's only been a few years' time. For him, decades. Grace focused again behind Sal toward the windows of the cafe. Imagine it. You've been here a few months. What if everyone else had aged 40 years by now, and you stayed the same? Sal shook her head. I couldn't handle it. And we come back to my original question. 
how do you deal with this without going crazy? I mean, you could outlive us all if you burn your candle, right? Have you ever thought about leaving the Vatican and taking your candle along? Grace drained her second flute. All the time. But I can't live alone. I would need someone I can trust to relight the candle, or I'd just let it burn and my life would last not long. Or forever, Sal offered to break the uncomfortable silence. If you blow it out and no one realizes it. Right. So you trust Manchu, Sal said. I trust all of you, Grace said, bringing her focus back to the conversation. Although Liam doesn't know yet. I'd probably trust him to do the right thing if he had to. Probably, Sal asked. Grace nodded. Liam knows something is different about me. We don't talk about it. But he... She frowned, looking for the words. He has a bad history with magic, very bad. The truth would hurt him. As it stands, he knows there's something wrong with me, but he is good at compartmentalizing. Yeah, but he'd deal if you came clean, Sal said, waving her hand in an attempt to sound eloquent. Your candle isn't just another spell that can go wrong, like Delphi. There's more to magic than harmful and harmless, Grace said. It's complicated. Liam knows that and fears what he doesn't understand. Sal thought of their last real conversation and felt a twinge in her chest. I know you care for him, or cared for him, Grace said, but he's damaged. We all are, Sal reminded her. So much for Liam, and everyone who knows your secret is on team three. A few higher-ups know, but I don't trust them. I'd never leave the team, not while Arturo is alive anyway. I'm in his debt. He saved me from eternity in a box. The debt thing comes in a lot, I guess, Sal said, thinking of Perry and of Liam waking up among the wires, missing two years of his life. That's a powerful motivator, if you have any sense of honor, Grace said. How many times have you saved Menchu's life? Sal asked. I know, I've seen a couple. 347, Grace said. Sal blinked. I was being rhetorical. I didn't know you kept score. Numbers and precision come naturally to me, Grace said, shrugging. I don't expect payback. I just keep track of things. I know how many times I've genuinely feared for my life, for example. Another Bellini arrived, and she looked thoughtfully at the bubbles breaking on the orange surface. And I know how many minutes I have left. Sal's head snapped up. You do? How many? Grace took a long drink, then looked at Sal with a level gaze. I'll tell you when you tell me how many minutes you have left in your life. Then she laughed. I'm just joking. I don't really know for sure, but the look on your face was great. Sal laughed, unsure whether Grace was really joking after all. Have you ever taken these days off with anyone else, Manchu? I'd rather not talk about him anymore. I thought you were doing math tricks, Sal said. We were talking about him? Grace stared at her row of empty champagne flutes. I was, but I'm done now. Shit, Grace was going morose. She had to get Grace sober and cheered up. Their food arrived, and Sal asked the waiter to bring Grace a big glass of water, and to keep that coming, instead of the champagne. So, what are we doing next? She asked around a mouthful of pastry. I kind of feel like drunk texting Liam, but I'm betting that'll piss him off. He's fun to poke, Grace allowed. More fun to hit. Sal laughed. Not sure I'm up for sparring with him. 
At least not until the breakup is a bit more in the past. That could get ugly. Her pocket buzzed and she fumbled for her phone. Speak of the devil, she said, then regretted the euphemism. A text from Liam. What's he say? Grace asked around a mouthful of cheese pastry. The text said, local ship going down, thinking some sort of time artifact, followed by an address. Sal wiped her mouth and half rose from the table. Her head spun and she sat back down again. Grace raised an eyebrow, seeming to have regained her usual self-control. How is Liam? He says there's some magic going down nearby, Sal said. He'll be fine, Grace said. Sal opened her mouth to argue, but reread the text. It sounded like every other text he'd sent about Team 3. Matter of fact, calm, and informative. There was no sense that the world was about to end, no sense that he was frightened. No sense that he even needed her, them, she reminded herself, her and Grace. Liam wasn't blaming her for not being there. She rubbed her head to try to shake the buzz. This was an it's time to go to work message, nothing more. And Manchu had ordered her to take the day off. She slipped the phone back into her pocket. So, you're Liam's sparring partner, she prompted. Grace nodded, grinning, and began to tell a story about the time Liam broke her nose. A fourth Bellini arrived, and another platter of pastry. So much for sobering up. Sal finally began to relax. Place, the alley outside Maestri del Tempo. Time, 10.28.02 a.m. For the fourth time, Liam pulled his phone out to check for texts. Nothing from Sal. He swore and dropped it into his backpack. He stood with Manchu and Asante in an alley outside a dilapidated shop. The building was clearly more than 100 years old, with cloudy windows that hadn't been cleaned in ages and ancient wood that had never been replaced. Liam tried to get more information about the shop and clockmaker online. He found one Google review of the shop, three stars, the clock was fixed, but the owner was rude, and nothing else. This woman isn't even on the grid, he said to the others. It's like she don't exist in the new millennium. Yes, because email is all that makes you whole in the eyes of God, Manchu said over his shoulder. You want me to do my job or not? Liam asked sourly. I got some information about time artifacts. Surprise, they alter time. Either slow it down or speed it up. Anything that helps someone walk through time? Asante asked. No one has invented a time machine yet, Liam said. Not to say that a few cultists in Arizona aren't trying. He glanced away from his laptop. Hey, why aren't you going in? Is the owner in the shop? She's there, Menchu said, peering through the dirty window. So is a younger man with a scarred face. They're not moving. What, are they dead? Liam asked, closing his laptop and putting it into his backpack. No, she's sitting upright at her table with all her tools and clocks, Menchu said. He's next to her, looking like he's about to hug her. They're just not moving. Liam joined them and squinted through the window. The woman was indeed sitting at her table, working on a clock, but she looked like a mannequin or a paused television show. She focused intently on her job. She just didn't move. The clock she worked on was brass and gold. Liam couldn't see the face as it had been removed so that the clockmaker could get at the guts of the thing, but it looked fancy and expensive. But the man, that's not a hug, Liam said. He's attacking her. You're right, said Asante. We have to do something. 
Do you think the clock is the artifact? Asante shook her head. No, look at the tool she's using. Beside the clock sat a tool made of what looked like gold. It had a large wheel attached to many smaller parts, reminding Liam of an old film projector. But there was no film here, just gears and an unearthly glow that pulsed slowly, like a heartbeat. Manchu sighed. I hate artifacts, he said. At least it doesn't look violent, Asante said. Not grace-level violence, anyway. I really miss Sal's deductive skills right now, Manchu said. But when Asante put her hands on her hips, he added, but we'll make do without. Liam, do we have anything to go on yet? Liam rolled his eyes and got his laptop out again. Nothing. Let me see what my mates and antiques have to say. After another half hour, no one had thought of anything, and the people inside still hadn't moved. Manchu stood. I am going in. Liam closed his laptop and looked at his mentor. It's a bad idea, but I don't have a better one. Godspeed you, Black Emperor. What? Don't worry about it. Do you want backup? Manchu nodded. You follow me in. Asante, keep watch out here. Text Sal if things get dicey. Asante nodded, and Liam stashed his backpack in the van. Manchu took hold of the door handle, pushed, stepped inside the shop, and stopped. What's wrong? Asante asked him. Manchu didn't answer, or even move. He seemed frozen entirely. Liam reached in to touch him, but Asante slapped his hand away. It's caught him. Let's not have it catch you, too. Is he frozen? No. Asante pointed above Manchu's head, where the bell hung, knocked aside by the door. Where it should have been swinging and ringing to announce Manchu's entrance, it hung nearly on its side, mid-swing, the clapper almost reaching the side of the bell, but not quite. Listen, Asante whispered. If they watched very closely, they could see the clapper move millimeter by millimeter toward the edge of the bell. When it struck, it made a muffled ring that lasted much longer than a normal bell ringing should have. He's moving just slowly. How long will it take him to reach the artifact at this rate? Liam did some calculations on his phone. He's doing about a millimeter a second, he said. So if the effect is constant, he'll reach the clockmaker in around five days. We may want to do something before then. At least Grace would be free. What do you want her to do? Liam asked, punch really slowly. Fair point. Our options are return to the library and do research, but I don't like leaving them alone. We could call Sal and get her take. We could call in Team One. Team One? I'm not sure shooting very slow bullets will do much good, Liam said. We have no idea what effect they'll have on the artifact. Could just make matters worse. What do you suggest? We could pull them out. Asante paused. That's direct. Can you think of any reason not to? You could get caught in the same time field. Liam waved his hand dismissively. Nah, here. He motioned for Asante to join him. Together, they reached for Manchu's arm, still close to the doorframe, and yanked. Manchu was heavier than he had any right to be, but he did ease out, and the more of him that emerged from the store, the faster he came, until he stumbled out entirely and went sprawling on top of Liam. What did you do that for? He asked, rubbing his hip where he had landed. You don't remember? Asante asked, who had neatly avoided the falling men. Remember what? I walked in and you yanked me back out. Check your watch, said Liam, and then pulled his phone from his pocket. I'll bet it's a few minutes behind ours. 
So that they may stay on top of Grace's anal retentive timetable, everyone on the team had perfectly synchronized clocks and watches. Liam pointed to his phone's clock, which said 11.45 a.m. Manchu's watch said 11.41. See? So, time slows inside, Manchu said thoughtfully. Asante squinted at the sky and then looked at the shadows in the valley. Nearly noon? In midsummer? The light's wrong. Liam went to his bag and pulled out his laptop. It said 2.31 p.m. Shit, the internet's three hours ahead of us. The shop's inside a bubble, and it's growing. I'm calling this an emergency, Menchu said. Bring in South. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.